Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is poet, editor, musician, researcher and lecturer Kate Fagan. Kate, welcome. Thanks very much, Magdalena. Now, before we start, uh, can I ask you to open the show by reading a poem from First Light, your new poetry book? I would love to. Thank you. Um, and I, I might read um, the poem called First Light, uh, after which the collection is named. This is a cento that was written for um, an artist called Nick Keyes, who did the artwork on the cover of the book. So, First Light. This time I'm going to talk about red light, bandit trees, altering ways of relating with clouds. Hum, 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 om, hum, hum. Well, it's neither red nor reflected light. No announcement this time. Raised, saying, hold in background and close the mountain, more like a chemical light with the usual accoutrements. He continues throwing roses into the garden until he misses. He throws the white roses he misses. Let me choose. We've been living, I think, in a kind of drowning light and the poem is over, the light of an alcohol lamp between thick things, between much railing and mouthing. I do something consciously, keep to the news, chalk a strange tall bottle. Finally, a kind of punctuation, sapphire light, solar light, light of a magnesium flare, ordinary light, acetylene light, naphtha noontide, jump spark light, as if this being's old light carries the whole world of present activities. I feel in some ways that the poem itself, that particular poem, and of course that's the title poem as well, almost encapsulate, encapsulates some of what you're trying to do in the book. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting observation. It's certainly, you know, this poem arrived at a time where I was looking for a way to bring um, these sort of discrete uh, series of poetry together and see if I could make them into a book. And I felt that I needed a glue, if you like, or some way of connecting them. Uh, um, of course, they connect in their own ways through the language, through the images, um, and through the concerns of, of consciousness and language in a way, but this de definitely arrived, um, this form and, and the, the, the desire to explore it solved a kind of a problem for me with the book and I found these um, yeah. dedicated centos so fun to write and so energising and, um, and simple to write in a way. So yes, they did bring it together, I think. Mm. There's a lot of different poets' voices coming together in, in the poem. Talk to me a little bit about the Cento form, because you, you don't see it too, I certainly don't see it too often in modern poetics, mm. but um, but there are quite a few in First Light. I think it interested me because I was thinking a lot um, when I began writing them about sampling and the use of sampling practices in poetry and also in music, um, because I also love and work in, in uh, various musical fields. And it strikes me that we might call it sampling in the early 21st century, but it may have been called um, reading or reference in an earlier time or just, um, you know, dialogue or a conversation even. And because all writers are readers first, there's a lovely sense that you're always in dialogue with people, uh, you know, past and present and hopefully future in your work. And, and as a form that um, that relies on sampling, I think, is interesting from that point of view. Um, I, this, the, the, the centos that I've put in here certainly aren't what you'd call strict centos. The form is very old um, and involved, 
I gather uh, it's, a, it's an early Roman form and it involved much more direct quotation than I have used. At times I was uh, just using a riff or a, a kind of a, two words from a poem or even one from a different poem and, and sort of weaving them together into this tapestry. And there is, um, there's a story with some centos that attaches to the idea of um, centurions making a patchwork cloak um, with with patches of cloaks taken from their enemies as a kind of a camouflage. So I wanted to invert that idea and make, I suppose, uh, woven pieces for friends, for people I love and admire very much, a kind of an, a different sort of cloak that was an acknowledgement of, of the reading of, of those poets and musicians. There's a fair few song lyrics in there too. Um, and then they just became so fun and so immersive to write. Um, and, uh, yeah... Hmm. And, and, and metaphorically, you know, it's almost as if those poets as well, to whom I suppose the, the Cento form that you've used is a kind of a homage, hmm. um, they almost protect you as well. They're, they're, they're providing their, their support, if you like. It, it's, that's a lovely way of, of thinking about it. And I certainly felt that way when I was launching this book and, and had quite a few people there for whom I'd written work. So it's one of the reasons I feel compelled to keep doing this work. It's, it's partly because it is such a vibrant conversation with people I admire very much who um, who continue to do this sort of writing and who, who continue to love it and to get up in the morning and love poetry and poetics. And I think as well, because I have spent quite a lot of time working in music, it's not unusual to collaborate in the world of music. It's never unusual to see 10 people getting up on stage together and really knocking around and making some sound. And I guess poetry at various times historically has been seen as a fairly solitary craft. Um, and for me, I, I need those times of distillation and solitude, but I rely on the conversation with other people also. Um, and I, I think that's one of the most both, both nourishing and most fun aspects of writing. Did, did you ever worry or have any issues with poets, a lot of them still living, coming back and saying, no, I didn't give you permission to use that line? <laughs> Um, no, the, the only difficulty I ran into actually was um, publishing one of these works for an anthology by quite a well-known press who were very concerned that I go back to Brian Eno, who's one of the people who I, I cite in various places in one poem, and ask for permission for every single word I'd taken from every single album of his. And of course that would mean I would be dealing with his um, record company and his managers. And it was such an enormous task that we ended up switching um, the work for one um, for, from a poet who was just delighted and said, yes, use anything you like. So there are those issues, I guess, um, that attach to it. But mostly, no, I think the people in in here to whom these are dedicated were very generous about the exercise um, and, and were very excited to have a poem written um, from their work, I guess, or that references it in some way. Of course, they, they look so very, very different to that work. Um, it's almost like just just writing in the aura of that person rather than um, writing as or, or in the voice of that person. Yes, and I guess that's the challenge of the Cento form is because you have to make it novel. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, there, there were definitely challenging times with it, um, but mostly, as I said, there was a sense of excitement. And I think it can be fun to step outside your own habits and routines as a writer and directly learn from you know the way another writer might might do something it's almost like going back to basics because of course when you start you you are reading widely and often unconsciously 
I think, stepping into spaces that are already occupied by writers that you love. So there's a kind of return there as well. Mm, for sure. So talk to me a little bit about the structure of the book and the design of the chapters. How did, how did you work out what to put where, especially since a lot of the poems had their existence elsewhere, mm. there were other chapbooks, etc.? Um, I think once I uh, I felt that there was a body of work that was that could be made into a book, um, I, I I guess I wanted to do certain things, and I, I, it's been a long time for me between books, partly because I've been so busy as a musician and also uh, teaching, and I felt uh, I felt very quietly proud of this work. It, it spanned a long amount of time, and one of the things I wanted to do in the opening of the book was to I guess begin with a series of poems that quietly tried to introduce what I now think might be my voice, <laughs> might be something that is reasonably unique to what I do. So there was some discussion about whether to begin with those Cento poems, but they felt quite noisy in a way and, and um, really upbeat. And I wanted to start with a very quiet introduction, a kind of an invitation in to the ideas and the thinking of the work. And I suppose in some ways that that is something I felt from putting together albums. I've put a few together between the books where you might not necessarily begin with your loudest piece. <laughs> you might work up to that and have that at track three or um, something like that. So I was thinking musically about the sonics of, of the book, but also the kind of um, the kind of gentle invitation, I guess, when I put the pieces together. Um, and there was a bit of shuffling around. I, I think... I was working on a couple of axes for it. One is that within each of the sequences, there was an order to the work. And then, of course, the sequences overall had an order. So I guess I was playing with those ideas um, and had some terrific advice. My, the first person to read the manuscript in an early stage was a poet friend of mine called Michael Farrell, and he made some really insightful comments about the kind of ordering of work, which I found really useful. I think sometimes you don't have enough distance on the work at that point. So a few people made some terrific, uh, some terrific um, comments also. Mm. Mm. And in, in terms of that voice, um, do you feel that there is a? I, I certainly felt it as a reader. But um, did you have in mind a kind of summative meaning beyond the? I mean, each individual poem reads quite distinctly, mm. but taken together as a collection, it's almost like there's something else that comes out of it as well. That's um, that's a really generous comment. Um, I think. You aim for that in some way, or I was hoping to get to that point, putting it together as a book. And it did mean that I took out um, a fair few poems that weren't helping that process or didn't seem to be working toward a greater whole. And even if I was attached to them for their situation or, or for the kind of the early time in which I wrote them, they weren't working at that at that bigger level. Um, so even even you know toward the end, I was still um, juggling a little with putting things in and taking things out. Um, one that I, I had taken out was actually Concrete Poem, which is the first poem of the last section called Thoughts Kilometre. And I had it in Authentic Nature, I think, the, the series of lyrics beforehand, because it was a short lyric, but it just didn't work with the other that group of poems. And so reluctantly, because it, it's a poem that has uh, it's made its way into various places, and I did want it in the collection, but I reluctantly took it out, and then realised literally a week or so before that it belonged with with Thoughts Kilometre, they were in fact both ser series of poems that were written about the same events and this was like a prologue to the longer work. So I was still shuffling um, the, or the order toward the end, I think. Hmm. 
Mm. And, and do you feel it's similar then, the process of pulling an album together, pulling a, a musical piece together, as pulling a poetry book together? I think they felt this way or that way more so this time because I actually was recording a new album at the same time as I was putting the manuscript together. Um, so I guess I was occupying both places at once and more so for me this time. I think with the book prior to this, a book called The Long Moment, um, I had a I had a desire to, it was sort of explosive at times. I, there are all these possibilities and I kind of had them all in there. And I didn't want that this book to be quite so um, messy, if you like. I really wanted to try and clean it up and pare it back a bit so that the work could resonate in a space that seemed more musical and more lyrical. So I think I was trying to, if not um, ma make the musical qualities of the work shine, at least try to intuit what they might be and, and give them a little bit more room, listen, listen to what I'd actually written rather than be driven by what I thought I'd written. <laughs> so, you know, there were times when I'd, I wasn't sure if it would work at all. There's always times in projects where you think they're all going to tumble over. Uh, but, mm. yeah, there is some big relationship, I think, going on in this book between uh, the musical and the conceptual elements. Yes, and, and quite literally, of course, in the collaboration with Luke Plum, with the correspondence section. Yes, that was a really interesting project. Luke had written uh, those 11 pieces of music, and they sort of existed already. He hadn't recorded them yet in a, in a polished form. And he just put an open call out to people working, friends and artists, he knew working in, across a lot of media, so a choreographer, a graffiti artist in Mexico, um, myself writing poetry, a whole bunch of people, and just said, look, if anyone's interested and if anyone wants to, you know, write anything in response to these pieces of music, that would be fantastic. It would be very loose, very undirected, very kind of community-oriented in the sense of, you know, throwing something out there and seeing what returned. So I had a lot of fun writing those pieces because I, I did try and write them in the spirit of Luke's music by playing, he'd, he'd sent draft recordings of the pieces and the way I wrote those works was to play those pieces of music on repeat and immerse myself in them and see what came. So the process, even though those poems I think are quite distilled and concentrated, they came from quite a noisy process. Um, and I set myself the task of using Luke's titles as the titles or within the poems as titles. And often it was words I wouldn't normally choose myself or kind of um, a vocabulary that was that was different from what I would reach for. So it pushed me off my comfort zone, if you like, and I had to I had to kind of you know work work out a different way of approaching approaching this language and this music. Mm. And have you had it? Have you heard it? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So it's a fantastic suite of music. He he recorded it. Um, I think at the beginning of last year he went to Greece, where he's got a home he sometimes lives in, and gathered a terrific ensemble of um, Greek and Celtic musicians together. And it's recorded but not released. I gather he's. It, it's sort of tricky. I think with an album, you often want to have the time to go and perform it live in order to release it. And he's looking for a time when he can do that and bring that band together and take them on the road. And because it's quite a big, it's like a chamber orchestra in a way. I think that'll be sometime coming. But it is exquisite music. Mm. I'll look forward to that. And can you read us one of the, the um, works within that? Maybe Letter X on Truth? Sure. Yes, I'd love to. Let me just find it here. Um, okay. So this is Letter 10 on Truth. 
A dog barks and light seeps from stars in retrograde transit. Outside, you are preparing to dismantle what you've made, a careful reckoning of parts. There is no easy route. Things shrug off their names to become more fully themselves. Truth is rebuilt every day from this melancholy. I will leave before summer returns with its lilting cuckoos and resonant air, before your taste disappears from my tongue. So I felt as well that that this notion of you know things expanding out, of finding more than just their names, again is a common theme through the book. I think so. I think m- most writers at some point, um, or many, get preoccupied with the idea that the world is outrunning the language that we have for it. And there's this tremendous conversation going on always between our perception of things as they are and our consciousness, I guess, that the things themselves and the, and the language that we have to describe those things. And I've always been fascinated by that I suppose, philosophical aspects to poetry and also the space that poetry allows you to explore that. Because poetry is very elastic and um, it's vast, you can make any connection you want to. You're unconstrained in a narrative sense. And that means that you can also take cognitive risks, I think, and leaps that allow those sorts of associations. That is always, I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it it fascinates me in poetry. so, yeah, I guess I'm always working away at that seam between things and and words. Yes, and and perhaps no more so in this book than in the, the book of hours for narrative lovers. Right. Almost a bit of a pun there. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, and a cheeky title, I think that did come from, um, I can't remember too clearly, but I remember thinking at the time there was some pub- very public criticism of some poets who I admired very much and people said, where's the story in your work? There's no story, there's just this clashing noise. And I, I was thinking about narrative lovers and what they might be, um, but also, of course, about lovers. And it, it really is a series of um, almost short chapters that recount a tale of love. And I was interested then in what poetry could do differently to the form of a novel, for example. I think in one iteration of that poem, I had them labelled as chapters, and there were 15 chapters. And I was trying to see if I could... Um, understand and relate to the kind of time that might elapse or move in a novel within a sequence of poems. And of course they are radically different things, but I was really driven by that sense of the differences between poetics and prose there. So in a way it works that point between when poetry kind of tumbles over into narrative prose and vice versa um, with poetic, poetic prose. And it's almost, it almost does mirror the narrative form, except that once you start reading it, you realise that it's it's almost more like thought than like narrative. <laughs> Things stop short. Yeah, it is definitely a, a study of consciousness and kind of how we experience things. I think consciousness is really messy. It's excitingly messy in a head, and things don't come out in a linear way. Lives aren't lived necessarily in, a, in an orderly way. They're incredibly interrupted and um, and messy and noisy. And it interests me a great deal to understand how how art can, can can sort of inhabit that that if you like and inhabit that space 
Um, and of course, uh, in an editing process, you are you are cleaning things up a bit, neatening things up. And I do admire writers who kind of leave the draftings in their work and leave in that tremendous sense of um, of energy and noise. But definitely, the sense that of an interrupted consciousness is very much a part of that work. Yes, I almost thought of a, it being a kind of feminine Finnegan's way. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I could. <laughs> Aspire quite to that, but that's that's um, again very generous. Thank you. Um, I certainly try to try to understand um, the relationship between, I suppose, actions being interrupted. There's some sense of fraughtness to the love narrative that's going on in that piece, if you like, and how that how that also relates to time. It's often been my my feeling that the way time is experienced is as much spatial as linear. So you can go back to a place that you've been in before and you're right back there as though time hasn't elapsed. So your understanding of the feeling of time passing becomes very, very spatial and more to do with a series of um, events in space, if you like. And I was really thinking about that when I wrote that work. Yes, and, and similarly, I think, in Observations of Time, which which also approaches this notion of time and, and the idea of dreaming too. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Um, there was a th- those works were a kind of a meditation on, um, I guess, on opening your perceptual horizons and not assuming that you knew what you were going to encounter before you got there. Um, so it's it is very much grounded in immediate experience of things that are happening right, you know, right under my nose at my desk as I'm thinking or as I'm walking. But again, with that um, that impetus toward a sort of a philosophy of how we see things and what we close ourselves off to and what we open ourselves up to. Yes. Uh, the most accessible section, of course, is, is authentic nature, which is, um, I guess it's more like, more like what, many people will experience as a poem mm-hmm. in standard sense. Um, I found that those were, were very song-like in many ways too. Those poems, a very strong rhythm mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. That was a real collection of works that had um, come from different places and kind of found a home together. I think maybe because of some of the qualities that you just mentioned, they were definitely trying to understand you know whether there is such a thing as authentic nature, whether that's an authentic human nature, or if that's the way we relate to our environment, our, the sort of ecologies around around us. Um, and the the works eventually found a home together as a cluster like that. I think in a way, the serial form of the other poems does do similar things in that, say, in the centos, each of them do stand as discrete lyrics, and they also feel quite song-like to me. Um, but you're right that the, the poems in Authentic Nature had their own life. They weren't speaking necessarily within a series or, or backwards and forwards to each other in, in the way of the rest of the book, um, but, but sort of formed formed that association over time. Could, could you read Authentic Nature to us? Yes, that particular poem. Well, that particular sure. poem? This was written... Uh, it begins in. I, I lived in a particular house in Newtown in Sydney for about ten years, and it's written out in the back garden of that house. Um, authentic nature. A long shadow passes over the garden. 
Yesterday, I buried the bones, feathers and skulls of two magpies fallen from a nest during storms, each bundle like coal, a plain music of repair. Something about the gesture troubles me. Authenticity comes at a price, it seems. Neocon cons make truth a panacea for ego, while nature becomes a cipher for speakeasy consumption tactics. When Salam met Heidegger, the silent forest began to grow, apprehension flowering between the mortal business of politics and a star above the well. Those who talk of genius are those who most suspect it. Some kind of transplanted integrity has taken place, the words and rhymes of older empires fraying under eucalypts and fruitless in a country such as this. Here I dig for a different language, a new balm for the bruise of lost opportunities and a way to resolve a parallax, even as I recite the lessons of an unleveled meeting, Arnica, Eyebright, the obvious humidity. Mm. And that does so pick up this notion of an authentic nature. I mean, however you might read those words. Mm. It, it interests me to think about, uh, I guess, in a country like Australia, which bears its, still bears its colonial history so close to the surface, um, place, place has such a resonance and such a fraught resonance in, in that context. Uh, so standing in, in, exquisite, beautiful, exhilarating landscapes in Australia always has a double or a triple meaning because it, it's been, there are stories there that are indigenous stories, for example, that are so much older than the stories that came later. And so you're always thinking that there are two, three, four ways of seeing every point in a landscape in Australia. And those ideas um, have really energised, I think, some of those works. Mm. Tell me about the collection it was written for, because it was originally written for a different collection, wasn't it? It was written as a birthday gift for a poet, another um, uh, Sydney-based poet, essentially, called Martin Harrison. And Martin was turning a significant age, I think, and uh, Michael Farrell, again, a poet I mentioned earlier, wanted to put together a book for him uh, in recognition, uh, not just of his work as a poet, but also as a teacher. He has taught at um, a particular place at UTS for many, many years and has inspired a lot of people um, to go on and continue as poets. And there was a real sense, I think, among the community of writers that, that that should be acknowledged in some way. So I wrote it for that, partly because when I, I was teaching alongside Martin at one point and he was introducing his students to the works of Salan and Heidegger and to the conversation that they had had. Uh, so mm. that, that the poem came from that direct experience, I guess. Wonderful. So we're almost out of time, but um, before we finish, tell me, are you working on something new now? I have little snippets of ideas. Um, I must admit, so many of the newer works have gone into this book, and um, I find myself quite busy as a parent these days, um, and also trying to finish um, a new album, which I've, I've recently mixed. So my poetry is swirling around, but uh, it's, it's not very concrete at the moment. Well, look forward to some motherhood poems. <laughs> There's one or two in this. The, the last two in the tempos, um, they kind of snuck in there toward the end, were, were poems directly about about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly transforming the horizons every day. Yes. 
it's right there's always something new well it's the interesting paradox isn't it because um any form of inspiration that it provides and i think it provides a lot is mediated by the uh lack of it time. is <laughs> you suddenly realize that what used to take you a day you have to get done in 10 minutes sometimes that's, right. that's not a bad thing <laughs> So t- tell tell our listening fans where they can find out more about you, your website. Uh, I do have a website at katefagan.com, which um, is mostly about my music and does need a little updating. Um, and you can find information about this book at the Giramondo website, the publisher um, who put it out, um, and various other places uh, on the internet, I guess. Fantastic. And uh, I didn't ask you to sing today, but maybe next time. <laughs> that would be a pleasure. Thanks so much for, um, for your time, Maggie, for taking an interest in the work. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for coming on. And, and that is all we have time for now. But don't forget to join us again next month when we interview the Hum of Concrete's Anna Solding. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>